Good morning. All right. If you would, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 19. And as you turn there, I want to share a story about when my wife and I lived in Los Angeles, California. We had actually lots of interesting stories living in L.A. Um, it was a miracle. We, our last year there, we lived in Los Angeles, and we made just under $20,000 that year. So uh, the Lord was good to us. Lord preserved us, um, made the fishes and the loaves multiply, you could say. But while we were there, one of the ways that we were able to meet our needs is that Sarah was an apartment manager. We could get free rent, and, uh, and she could watch Grace, who was our only child at the time. Uh, but we had, needless to say, interesting stories being apartment managers and getting to know all the people who lived in the complex around us. And one um, particular individual we'll never forget, we, were, uh, we actually worked with several apartments in the same uh, area, same company owned them, and if you went out of town, you kind of covered for somebody. And the manager of the other complex across the street was going on vacation and, and said, hey, here's the keys, here's everything that's going on, but said, but I need to warn you, there, there is one particular tenant that has been doing some rather odd things lately. So the last time I, I, I served, actually I had to serve an eviction notice um, has kind of gone berserk um, and has um, been writing weird smiley faces all over his door and has been um, it's sometimes known to be walking around naked and doing some other strange things. So hopefully you all don't have any trouble while I'm gone. Well, it wasn't 24 hours later that we have people calling and saying that our, our, our apartment is dripping from the ceiling. And it turned out that he was flooding his apartment and causing water to go down all the way below. We called the police. Um, he wasn't doing it at the moment that they arrived, so therefore they could not charge him for that at that moment. Um, but uh, So they left. Uh, the next, I guess it was hours later, I went to work thinking all is now taken care of. Right when I get to work, Chase, you need to come back. There's craziness going on. He's on top of the roof, and he's walking around. And so literally, when you see on the news helicopters flying over and all the stuff in, in an area, that was us. That was our apartment complex. This guy is walking around, and, and fire department gets up there, takes him down, and they tell us we can hold him for 72 hours under psychological evaluation. It's like, well, what happens after the 72 hours? Well, they said, well, it's not a guarantee 72 hours. It's up to 72 hours. Owner of the apartment said, Chase, I want you to go in there and change his locks. And so we go there. You can't open the door because there is a soiled towel around the doorknob. You get closer, you're seeing weird things written on the eviction notice. So we have to go inside the apartment through the window there's a mound of trash and feces blocking the door, so it couldn't have been opened anyway. The, everything is destroyed. All the pipes underneath the sink had been ripped out so that the water, wouldn't, when it turned on, would just flood underneath. But that wasn't the strangest aspect of it. The strangest aspect was seeing the literature that was on the floor. Things of demonic um, um, literature, spiritual, spirituality, 
You saw things carved out of the tables. And, and it was clear that this, this individual, there was something very disturbing and wrong with him. We changed the locks, but apparently found out that that was against the law, and so we had to let him back into his apartment. I didn't have to do that. The individual came back from vacation. We thought all was good and all was done. One day we're having dinner, and we hear the fire alarm. We hear the, the sirens, and I look across, and I said to Sarah, he's back. <laughs> and he had proceeded to set his apartment on fire with him inside it. Now, I don't know what was going on in this man's mind. I wouldn't be surprised to find that there was some sort of demonic activity. Maybe this man was afflicted by demons. But my point in bringing that up is that those are the kind of situations where we might entertain that there's spiritual demonic activity going on. Might. But when we come to the scriptures, they remind us that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. It doesn't mean everyone is demon-possessed. But it does mean that the world system in which we live is under the prince of the power of the air. Scripture speaks of him as the one called Satan, the devil, the great adversary. The Scripture reminds us of our spiritual state as we are now Christians and describes it this way, that we were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. You might not have realized that. You at one time before Christ were under the reign of darkness. Paul says elsewhere to the Ephesians that at one time we were following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. Elsewhere he writes that we were bound by the elementary things of this world, namely spiritual forces of darkness. We often don't look at the world that way. But let me tell you, the songs we were just singing were thinking of the world that way. A mighty fortress is our God. And that his kingdom will last forever. And so as Christians, as the church, as Oak Park Baptist Church... We need to view the world as it really is. And that will impact our mission and the way we approach it. As a church, we need to think about our mission as liberating those who are held captive by the world. Held captive by the prince of darkness. This is why Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what he says our obstacles are. So how do we fight? How do, how do we respond to a spiritual battle? To the Corinthians, Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, though we are human, though this world is real, that we can see it with our eyes, we can touch it with our hands, we can smell it with our nose. He says, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We do not engage on that level. He says, we have weapons. What are these weapons? He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, says that you and I have access to words that have divine power to unlock the shackles of those who are bound in a stronghold. Because it assumes a worldview that you are under the domain of darkness if you do not know Christ. And with these words, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is how the scripture describes our engagement with this world. Christ has given us the scriptures so that we may read them and we can see the world for how it really is. And so in a sense, I want to wake us up a little bit this morning. I want to give us an alert because I think sometimes we just kind of forget the fact that we wage war against the prince of the power of the air. A lot of this has to do with the fact of our Western culture. We are under the influence of modernity. You might say, what what does that mean? Modernity came after the Renaissance period, and it really affirms this, the power of human beings to create, to improve, and reshape their environment with the aid of practical experimentation, scientific knowledge, or technology. That's true. I'm preaching off an iPad. That doesn't mean that, that that isn't good. I mean, we have medical advances beyond things that we could ever have imagined. There are great things that have come out of modernity. The scientific method, logic, we, we think through things. But one of the downsides of it is that we often neglect and some even totally reject any realm of the spiritual. We can explain it all. And if not, we will figure it out over time and more testing. But the scriptures say there is another component to this world which we must take into awareness. And so if we're going to remain steadfast and faithful to the mission given to us by our Lord, we need to understand what we're up against. And at some level, we should feel the weight of the spiritual battle and cry out, as Paul did, who is sufficient for these things? If you never cried that cry, you you probably haven't engaged further enough. Who is sufficient to engage at that type of level? I am just a mere man. We don't find our confidence in ourselves, but in the power of the name of Jesus, who says, fear not, for I have overcome the world. So keeping these things in mind, we come to Acts. Acts 19, and we're going to work through verses 8 through 41. And as we do so, we're reminded that the word of the Lord, that divine power that we have access, will prevail over darkness. We see this in two places in our text. Look in verse 10. Paul is having a a privilege of preaching the word for two years, Acts 19.10. So that all the residents of Asia, what? Heard the word of the Lord. That was what was going on. Paul's ministry was surrounded by preaching and proclaiming the word. Verse 20. We're going to find out what happened. But so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What I want to insist, or I want to press into our minds, our hearts is that this word is living and active this morning. 
that this word is the means, it is the power by which we engage this world. We do not wage war with the flesh. We wage war by opening up the scriptures and we proclaim them. And everything we do is founded upon this because we are trusting that if we engage in in the battle of the flesh with our flesh, we will accomplish nothing. But if we engage according to the weapons that have been given to us, namely the sword of truth, the Lord will use us and we'll be able to prevail in our mission. And so this morning, I want to look at how the word prevails in a world of darkness. And we see here in verses 8 through 12 that the word, first of all, prevails through proclamation. The word prevails through proclamation. Paul is in Ephesus. He has instructed, as we saw last week, these believers who, who quite yet hadn't heard of, of the Holy Spirit and, 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 and Christian baptism. He corrects them. And then he goes on with his ministry as he usually does. And he entered the synagogue and was there for three months speaking boldly and reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is, this is old hat. We see this with Paul. He goes to the, the, the synagogue, he preaches Christ, and then he's kicked out. It's interesting here, though, that we see that he's able to stay there for three months. We don't know that if this is the longest stay that he's ever had, but this is the longest stay that Luke has recorded for us. And so Paul is able, the Lord is enabling him to be in a place longer than at least we have seen him being able to be. But nevertheless, Verse 9, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that is Christianity. And so he withdrew from them, but notice, he took the disciples with him. That means some believed. And so in this context, he's proclaiming the word. Yes, it is in a seemingly now hostile environment, but yet some believe. But this just leads to another opportunity. He takes them into verse 9, and he starts reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This is a lecture hall. We don't know if, who Tyrannus is. We don't know if he's alive at this point or not, but, but some speculate that this was his own lecture hall. He was a philosopher known in the day. And it looks as if Paul is either renting the facility out, or he's been invited to come and speak And what we see here is he's able to stay there for two years preaching the word of the Lord. It makes me think of what Joshua said this morning. We're not in the hall of Tyrannus, but we are on the field of Jephi. And for four or five years we've been there. Jonathan Woodyard before me, then me, and then Cody, now Joshua. And we are given an audience, and it has not just been three months, it has not just been two years, but we have been able to minister and proclaim the word. And as Joshua said, Coach Browning isn't necessarily even a believer. But yet those doors have been opened to us, and it may look like you've been doing that for four years. What are you seeing? Yeah, we don't know what the Lord has been doing. But we, like Paul said, I came and Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We're just planting and watering and planting and watering and planting and watering, and we are pleading with the Lord, give the growth. And whether that looks like they come here or whether they they go to another church in this area, but we are there just planting and watering, planting and watering. And I think the area where we get our most discouragement is, is that we think we should be engaging with flesh and blood. 
yet here's how the word is prevailing in our own city where the world is trying to push out every ounce uh, or an inkling of Christianity and yet we're able to walk on the field every week and preach Christ. Paul's able to have that kind of impact. Paul is a little unique. Look at verse 11. Joshua's not doing any of these things. I can assure you, the God, and God was ex- doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Wow, okay, <clears throat> well, that's pretty amazing. God is now working through Paul in such a way that, that he's taken his handkerchief, I don't know, I don't know if he just threw it down or what, but someone picks it up, says, ooh, a sweaty handkerchief, and and it starts healing people. People take his apron, and they find other things. Anything that's touched Paul, and and it is like it has magical powers. In some sense, it does. Not only that, but he's casting out demons. Here we get in that kind of spiritual realm. People who are of demonic persuasion, under that influence, He's casting them out. Next week, we're going to see in chapter 20 that not only does he do these things, but he's able to even raise someone from the dead. Now, you look at that and you say, well, no wonder Paul's ministry was successful. If we could do that at the football meal, well, well yeah. I mean, we would, they would all come, right? <clears throat> so how should we think about this? Should we be seeking to build a ministry around healings and handkerchiefs and have my own holy water to give out and, and you know, it's blessed, you know, pay for it and you can get, you know, your, your, your house sold and do whatever you want with it and, and, and you can cast out troubling demons, get you the job you want. Is that the type of ministry that we're supposed to be building? That's not what Paul was doing, number one. Once you notice it was God doing extraordinary works by the hand of Paul. You'll read of Paul elsewhere talking to Timothy about taking medicine and, and different uh, remedies to help his stomach problems. If, if this was just something that Paul did on demand whenever he wanted, then why didn't he just heal Timothy? God is doing a work through Paul. And it's interesting, he's doing it in Ephesus where this is a highly spiritualized environment. But not only that, but Paul is an apostle, and we need to understand that. The apostles were gifted by God in a certain way for a certain era to do a certain thing, and that was to establish the church. Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. They are laying the groundwork. And just as God has done throughout history... Think of every great deliverance, every major event where God shows up for a season. There are signs and wonders, and then it gets normalized. We are at the beginning of God's great new exodus through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beginning of a new era of the new covenant. And so you're seeing God use his workers, Paul being one of them, in an extraordinary way to establish the foundation of the church. Not only that, 
Paul will talk about these things to the Corinthians who are enamored with them. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and particularly he uses the analogy to, to persuade them not to be so focused on the miraculous, but to focus on the substance of things that edify, and through, particularly that of the ministry of the Word. And he says, he uses the analogy, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish things away. You know what he's talking about? Their need for the miraculous. He says, you needed these things because it's the beginning. But you're supposed to grow up into the mature man of Christ. How does that happen? Through the edification of the Word. And that's why Luke is so um, careful to to note verse 20 that it is the Word of the Lord that continued to increase and prevail. This is what was going on. Yes, the Lord used the apostle to confirm these things. But that doesn't mean that we are now somehow supposed to set up our own little ministries, healing ministries all over the world. So does this mean that God doesn't heal? No. I don't want you to take away from that either. This doesn't mean that God does not heal. In fact, we should be praying and asking God to work in Jesus' name. We probably too quickly turn to our modernity and say, okay, what's the fix? I'm not saying don't use medicine or anything like that. I'm just saying, do we go to the Lord in prayer? Do we depend upon Him, or do we always have our own natural explanation and solution? If you go to Mark chapter 9, I want you to see this with Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke. So you can just go Matthew and Mark. Mark chapter 9. Jesus is going to heal a boy with an unclean spirit. The father comes to Jesus in verse 18. And he says, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I ask your disciples to cast it out and they were not able here we got the disciples. There's a situation. They're not able to do it. You might say, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. So Jesus does it. But look at his rebuke. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He says, bring them to me. And Jesus heals him. Disciples, at the end of the passage, if you look in verse 28, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. When I was in Haiti, one of my trips, I asked Pastor Joseph. You all are new. Pastor Joseph is a native Haitian who has been used by the Lord mightily to establish churches in Haiti. And we get to work with them. And I asked him, as they're in a very highly spiritualized culture, voodoo and other things are, are, are commonplace there. And I just said, what are your thoughts on demon possession and exorcism? Got four hours in the car, why not ask that question? He, he just said, yeah, I believe in it. <laughs> and I said to him, well, you know, does it happen often? He says, it's not like every day. It's not something that we engage with, but it's not uncommon to find someone who is under the demonic possession. I said, so what do you do? He says, we pray. We pray. 
so as we look here in this text, we might not see these things. We're not a highly spiritualized, demonically or idolatrously filled temple idols type culture. We're not sensitive to these things. The devil has done a different type of, of delusion for us. Just don't believe I exist and then I've got you right where I want you. But God does work. But we shouldn't expect our ministries to look just like Paul. That's my point. I want you to see what happens through this proclamation. Look in verse 13. And we begin to see the word transform. The ministry of the word is beginning to transform people and, and people are beginning to take notice so much so that we have some itinerant Jewish exorcists who begin to say, oh, I'm going to start tapping into that power. Kind of backfires on them. Let's look and see. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists, verse 13, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Oh, that'll see how that works. Verse 14. These were seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva who were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Uh-oh. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered them all and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Whoa. Won't try that again. Paul's ministry is flourishing, so these Jewish exorcists begin to say, well, well, we don't really believe in Jesus, but we're seeing some wonders here. We'll try that. Which imagine him saying, in Jesus' name, and, and, and acting, and preaching, which, by the way, is what we do. Repent, and then, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. And I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name. There's power in the name. And so they hear this, and they think we can control it, and we can harness it and use it for our own purposes. And they get run out naked and afraid. Some of you picked that illusion up. Interesting here when Jesus truly comes in his own power. We see it when Jesus came to the demoniac in the garrison, almost the opposite thing happens. This demoniac was filled with a legion of demons in him, thousands of demons. He was out in the wilderness. He was naked and he would often um, uh, cut himself with the rocks at night and they would hear him scream. And so Jesus comes in Luke chapter 8. And he casts out the demons from this man. And the very opposite scene happens. In Luke chapter 8, verse 35, the result is that the man returns home dressed in his right mind. But these who try to harness Jesus' power for their own means, but yet not submitting to him, here's seven of them, verse 1 demon, and they run away naked, injured, and degraded. What's the point of this? This episode shows that there's power in the name of Jesus, and you must bear that authority if you're going to use that authority. And I want you to know that Jesus has given us the authority 
to preach his word, to proclaim his word. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you come in his name. And I want you to know that the forces of evil tremble before you. And this is the reason this is so, we're going to find out in Luke chapter 11. So let's go back and look at Jesus. Luke chapter 11, he's, he's casting out demons. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. Jesus was casting out demon, it was mute, and then we have some of the skeptics come and they begin countering Jesus' miraculous works by saying he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which was another name for Satan. He's a worker of Satan. And Jesus says to them, every kingdom, verse 17, Divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. Meaning, if Satan is against Satan, it would fall. And the irony is, he is, and we'll see that. Verse 18, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Hinting at, they are workers of evil, these Jewish itinerant exorcists. Who are they able to do it by? Verse 20, but it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons when the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he gives this analogy. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Who's the strong man? Satan. What's the palace, this world? What are his goods, those things he has taken captive? If he's the strong man, he can guard and keep these things secure for his own purposes. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 22, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he's trusted and divides his spoil. This is what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection. He came into the strong man's home and bound him. And he has now opened up the gates, and we are now coming in by his authority and proclaiming liberty to the captives. That is what we do, and this is what Paul is doing here. And these uh, individuals have tried to coerce and use it for their own methods, and, and, and what we're seeing is that Christ's power is real, and it will not be trifled with. So look in verse 7, look at what happens. 17 of Acts 19, sorry. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What we're seeing here is that the gospel and the proclamation of the power of Jesus' name is transforming lives. Brothers and sisters, I know that we talk a lot about wanting to transform our culture. We want to transform our city. And, and oftentimes we think the means by which I will do that is engaging in the political process. And I'm not saying you don't do that. But we, it looks as if you think that is the last hope for Christianity. It is not 
That kingdom, this kingdom, is under the power of the evil one. And if you want to go out casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, go for it. But your kingdom will fall. And we are coming to grips with that reality. We have bought into a facade. And we don't realize that our kingdom is not of this world. But notice, how do you transform lives? How do you transform a culture? You do it with one individual at a time. And here, a group of individuals begin forsaking this world. This is what true biblical repentance looks like. In their case, they were enamored with the cult. They were enamored with magical arts. They had books of scrolls and spells. And you might be thinking, what what is this? Like witchcraft central? No, this, this culture was very much like what we see when I go down to Haiti. They tap in to voodoo not because they are trying to be demon possessed, but because they want their business to succeed. They want protection. They, they, they have trouble, and so they go to the witch doctor, and he gives them spells, and they, 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 they chant these things. They go through these rituals, and they, they feel safe. And what we see here is that after all this, it looks like some of these new believers come, and they look, they say, uh-oh, we've got more to divulge. And they bring out all their stuff. All the things they have been putting their trust in, finding their security and safety in, and they say, let's light it on fire because this is worthless. Let me ask you, what have you turned your back on when you came to Christ? Maybe it was people. What did you find security in? Money? Drugs? Avenues of sin, addiction to your computer screen, your, your, your phone. What biblical repentance looks like is to say, hey, I will cut it all off if need be. And seeing it for what it is. Yeah, it's a computer screen. But yet the forces of darkness use it to enslave you. Do you see it that way? Oh, it's just the political process. Yes, but it is under the reign of the domain of darkness. Do you realize when you get sucked in that you're just playing by the rules? Do you see the world like that? As one author recently wrote about um, literature in the Bible like Revelation, he says, it's not for us to speculate with the newspaper or the events going on, but rather it is to tell us how things really are. Is to open our eyes to reality. We look at the physical world and we just see things that we, oh, I can manage this, I got it all under control. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. You need to see what's behind this. Jamin read from Daniel chapter 7. He didn't know that I was going to say this, but I'm going to say this. Daniel chapter 7 starts speaking of kingdoms as bears, as leopards with wings and ferocious teeth, iron teeth, and they smash and they devour. Why does he do that? Because the kingdoms of this world are under demonic influence and they're just like their father who came to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's why when you flip on the news, you see destruction and perversion everywhere. And you see people suffering for it. You see it in this country as you do in every country. Because this is not the kingdom of God. But there is one like the Son of Man who is coming. And he will smash the kingdoms of this world. And he will bring them to utter ruin. And like we read in Daniel chapter 7, they will be thrown into the fire. 
And so when you turn from your sin, you see it very vividly here. They brought it all together. It was amount of 50,000 pieces of silver. You know how much money that was? That was a yearly wage that would amount up to 137 people. Could afford to sponsor 137 people for a year. And they said, we're done with this. Because we see it for what it is. And you see transformation. A city is literally being transformed because the word was preached. And because people came in the power of Jesus' name. And so if we want to expect our city to be impacted by the gospel, we must be letting the gospel impact us and transform our lives. What is it that you and I are so enamored with, we cannot deal without. And you might find your little idol in your closet. Because when it's taken away, you're saying, what, what do I do? Last point. The word prevails in opposition. Whole culture is being changed. At least a big enough segment that's going to start raising some eyebrows. And I have about five minutes to tell you what happens. Here's the bottom line. A man, verse 23, named Demetrius shows up, a silversmith made of, who makes silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis is the goddess of, who is located in Ephesus. Their temple was the temple of Artemis. And Artemis, just so you know, she was the mythical daughter of Zeus and Leto and was associated with health and help of various kinds and was worshipped because of her lordship over supernatural powers. She was a virgin who helped women in childbirth, a huntress armed with a bow, and the goddess of death. And they had built their whole culture around her and saying, we bow to her. You'll see it throughout this passage. Verse 28, the crowd was crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Oh, you don't see our culture saying great is Artemis, but you'll see our culture say great is our sexual freedom. Great is our sexual freedom. Great is our independence. Great are we, 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 and they will march to that tune. And you start preaching and start teaching and you start exposing the error of darkness, you can better believe that opposition will arise. What happens with these? Verse 25. He gathered together with workmen in similar trades. So he starts getting a coalition together. we got to stop these people. Why? He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Oh, okay, now we're getting into it. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Here's the bottom line. When are we going to find opposition to the gospel? When our gospel transformation threatens their wealth, when it exposes their false religion and ideology, and then this will create conflict. And this happened here on a, on a grand scale. And I was trying to think, what would this look like for us? It would look like enough people turn from their ways that the debauchery that usually goes on at Derby Day ends. No one goes to the Derby anymore. 
Or at least the drunk fest in the middle stops. And whatever else goes on. And no one's buying alcohol at excess because they're no longer getting drunk and, and, and they don't want to give their money to this. You better believe someone's going to figure out what is it that people are buying into and we better stop it because it's going to kill this city. That's what's going on here. And here's what I want to encourage you with. That's a big scale and Lord could do those things. Using all the churches and people proclaiming and the Lord has been gracious to this region. There are so many good churches that are preaching the gospel. We're not an anomaly here in our area. But let me tell you, this happens in the neighborhood. We're trying to reach this area. I don't know what forces of evil that are awaiting us, but you better believe that once lives are starting to be changed, someone's going to come out of the word work and say, we're putting an end to this. Or it might just be one individual who's saved out of a family and that stronghold is that household and you begin sharing the gospel and they say, I want to follow Jesus and you start seeing the opposition show up. And what I want you to see here is that what Luke is painting for us is a picture that we are engaging with forces of evil. doesn't mean that everybody you come in contact with is demon-possessed or something, but understand that the forces of evil are at work and will oppose us if we are preaching Christ. It looks like great riot comes about. But I want to end on a positive note because I've said a lot of negative things. Verse 35. Then the town clerk, a government official, okay? So remember, I said, yes, this government of ours in every country lies under the power of even one. But yet, God's grace still comes through. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Apparently a meteor probably fell down and they shaped it into idol and they said it's divine and they worshiped it. That was enough reason for them to keep going. He does it. He's not a Christian. That's what I want you to see. The clerk, the official over this area keeping control is not a Christian. But look at what he does goes on, he says, for verse 37, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are opened, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Here's what's going on. God's grace and the gift of government. You know what God's gift is? Order. Government, though recognizing its true origin, at least under the power of the evil one, yet is not able to thwart God's purposes. And so even here, we, we enjoy this, do we not? Laws that protect us. I'm able to say these things. We're able to preach, at least for now, we see the goodness of an individual who looks at this and says, hey, you guys are the ones breaking the law. Demetrius, you're causing a riot here today. You're causing the trouble. You can go through the processes that have been put in place. So what does this mean for us? It means that we are to be good citizens. It means that we are to be upstanding citizens that such could happen of us when the trouble comes. 
I'm out of time, but I'm going to go one more verse. Verse 31, this riot is going on. They've gathered two disciples that are companions with Paul, and they're probably beating them and making a mockery of them. And the disciples say to Paul, don't go in there. They're going to kill you. But I want you to see who else says this. Verse 31, and even some of the Asarachs who were friends of his. You know who they are? Police officers. Police officers. These are people who know what Paul has been doing, and he's been doing it in such a way that it's upstanding with an integrity. And they say, hey, we don't buy into what you're saying. We worship Artemis, but we will protect you. And so, brothers and sisters, you may be frustrated with the government. You may think this is your time to rise and shine, but I want you to see that we do not wage war with flesh and blood. And that God's grace even permeates through the mess. This is a godless society, and yet they're there defending the order that God has put into this world. And so as we go about today, I want us to minister in the name of Jesus, minister on his terms, not our own. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, so we can leave that up to him. We can leave the ugliness and the nastiness and all the things that we say and do, post on Facebook, all alone. Because we come by the authority of Jesus, which is really what transforms lives. All right, let's pray and we will be dismissed. Dear Father, lots here, a lot that is foreign to us, Lord, foreign to me. And Lord, I pray that you will help our unbelief. So often we want to take matters into our own hands, do things our way, but Lord, we see that you, through the ministry of your word, prevail over the forces of darkness. And in fact, Satan's kingdom is divided. And you have bound him in some sense that his kingdom is now crumbling and, and we are now able to preach good news, the freedom of redemption, of life. In Jesus' name. And I pray for us as a church, for us as individuals, as parents ministering to our children, as students in, inside the classroom, as, as we minister to the Jeff High football team. Lord, we, let's do it with integrity and honor. And even those who do not join us, we see that in our case right now, they're not against us. And so we should relish in your goodness displayed in these things. We say these things in your name. Amen.